Matthew 14, 1 through 23. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work within him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. Well, that's a good story for the new year, isn't it? Whoops, just going to spill my tea and drop my papers. This is a new year and we are in a new series. Um, Johnny kicked it off for us last week, a series um, called Heart. And the point of this is that we would explore practices that um, form in us hearts of God-shaped love. And practices are a helpful way to root us in a new year. As we enter, as we kind of anticipate, you know, 2024, practices are a good way to root us. Um, and the point of practices, or spiritual practices, is that they would kind of lead us in a direction, and that direction is towards wholeness and formation. And last week, Johnny set the foundation for what we're going to attune to over the next five weeks in these particular kinds of practices. Um, and he talked a lot about the fact that practices are about growth. He talked about how they work. And he talked about the importance of them not being confused with resolutions or willpower or doing something to succeed or fail. So it's really worth a listen, because it kind of set the foundation for what we're going to continue on to. And again, like I said, practices are about 
leading us in a direction, and that direction is towards wholeness and growth. And last week, too, Johnny mentioned that this has felt weighty for him, this year in particular, the idea of formation. Because um, one of the primary criticisms of Christians today is that we don't look like Jesus. You've probably heard that, that um, Jesus is cool, but I don't really like the church. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't, as a people, tend to or be perceived as loving like Jesus loved. That maybe we're known for a lot of other different things, and looking like Jesus isn't the thing that is the distinctive about us. And it's pressing for us to attune to this because we're about to enter 2000, or we're in 2024 and it is a election year. Um, and many of us at the last election or even during COVID have found it hard to reconcile love with some of the exchanges that happen between people of faith. And I think there are people who are not people of faith that struggle with the exchange between people of faith. And maybe the distance that it feels like there is between those exchanges and the notion of love. And so that's the big picture, which is why formation is so important to us. But then like we just went through the holidays and um, holidays with family can be good, but also they can highlight and that we don't always love the way we want to. We can be a little short-tempered, or a little impatient, or petty, or unkind. And so both of these kind of writ large, this big kind of picture of formation in the life of the Christian community, and then in our own personal lives, um, asks us, okay, what is formation? How do we get formed into people who are loving? How do we learn to love more? And then how do we also increase our capacity to receive love? Because both are important, giving and receiving love. For centuries, the term for that growth is spiritual formation in the Christian tradition. And Dallas Willard, um, Johnny quoted this last week too, says it this way, spiritual formation is the tradition of Jesus Christ, in the tradition of Jesus Christ, is the process of transformation of the innermost dimension of the human being, the heart, hence the name of our series. Agape, love, is the center or the linchpin of it all. And the process of formation is both a passive and an active work. There are things that God is doing and then there are things that we are invited into doing. And so throughout our series, we are going to explore five practices that can have a transformative effect on our hearts and then into our lives. And the intention is that we would grow in Christ-likeness towards the center, the linchpin of this whole thing that we're about, which is love, agape. And so today, the practice that we are going to attune to is solitude and silence. And for some of you, when you hear the idea of practicing solitude and silence, you just get this wash of relief, like, oh, thank God, there's going to be some quiet in the world. And for some of you, you feel a little neutral about it. All right, solitude, silence, whatever. Like, doesn't really cross my mind all that much. 
And then for some of you, when you think of silence, like not having music on, not like having a chat, not having a person around, there's a little bit of uncertainty that creeps in. Maybe even a slight bit of anxiety. So today we're going to look at Jesus's life as an invitation to this practice. Um, And looking for the motivations, like why would we even opt into practice of solitude and silence. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll just kind of dance around the Gospels and look at um, how Jesus did this practice so that we can be motivated for ourselves. So let's pray. Jesus, thanks for the opportunity to learn um, practices that will, we hope, deepen our capacity for love. I pray that today as we um, look at the life that you lived, that there would be a new, fresh invitation for why we would step towards solitude, why we would step towards silence. And I pray that for any of us that feel worried or anxious about that, that you would calm that or help us to live into the discomfort of it and that we would see this as a gift today. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, The gospel narratives are kind of peppered with all of these moments where Jesus moves into intentional solitude and silence. And I want us to know before we go into the gospels is that these are not absolutes or rules for living. They are stories to inform our practice. And they help us to have kind of a sense or a picture of motivation for when there might be a need or when there might be a moment where we would reach for the practice of solitude and silence. And the first practice is probably familiar, likely familiar to most of us, um, which is the practice of quiet prayer. In the Gospels, there's many moments where Jesus kind of steals away, either in the early morning or the middle of the night, and it says that he goes to a quiet place and he prays. So in Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This picture of quiet prayer early in the morning. And then before choosing his disciples, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And I think these examples are familiar to us, which I think for some it is referred to in the tradition as quiet time. I don't know if that's a tradition that you grew up with or that you, like that's a term that you're familiar with, but many are. There's this notion that there is a time in the day where you have what's called quiet time. And that quiet time um, maybe is when you get up early or you stay up late for prayer or for, to read the Bible or to get clarity about something. And it's just actually practical. Like for Jesus, it's really practical. He comes from a communal Um, society. So there's not very many moments where he's likely alone. So when you get up early or you stay up late, you're kind of guaranteed like a few minutes of solitude and silence. And that's actually true for us too. Like a lot of our lives are filled with people. If you live with people, if you go to work, if you're driving in your car, you might be alone. But that person that just cut you off, (laughs) I'm not feeling very solitary internally. So it's just kind of a practical thing for us. If you want to experience solitude and silence, you get up early or you stay up late in order to have that. And it's a good thing to do that. 
But there are lots of other moments where Jesus reaches for solitude, for the deserted place where he is guaranteed silence. Lots of other moments. And so I want us to just kind of quickly move through those. Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is drawing crowds to him. Luke chapter 5, 15 to 26. Enormous crowds collected to hear Jesus and be healed of their diseases. But he slipped quietly away to deserted places for prayer. Jesus slips away to deserted places even while people are lined up to hear him and be helped by him. I think that's really important for us to take notice of. Jesus slips away for quiet prayer, even while people are lined up to hear him and be helped by him. And I think there's a picture here where Jesus didn't take himself or kind of classify himself as the most important all the time. We are not always responsible for other people's wholeness and well-being, even when there is a genuine need. And so sometimes the practice of silence and solitude gives us space from work and the needs of others. It is a practice of rest. That's a gift. But having said that, sometimes solitude is interrupted when you need it the most. That passage that we just read about Herod taking the head of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin and a really good friend of his. It's a heartbreaking moment. He loses someone that he loves dearly. And so he is going to take solitude to contend with the pain. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. You can see why he would need to do that, right? This horrific thing has just happened to somebody that he loves. But his solitary moment is interrupted. We read it. He's getting on a boat, it's going out to this desolate place, and then who meets him on the other side? A crowd of people. He's probably like, cool, cool. <laughs> this is the moment where I really needed to take a breath, and here is all of y'all. The crowd meets him on the other side of the water, and in that moment, he isn't like, oh, I need a hot second, excuse me while I get back in the boat. His compassion compels him to help them which is a beautiful thing. And so he does, he attunes to them, to their needs, speaks to them. And then the disciples are like, yo, we've been here a hot second. They're probably hungry. And he's like, well, then let's give them something to eat. And so this is a story that we're maybe most familiar with. It is the feeding of the 5,000, but we don't necessarily always read that in context. Jesus is looking for solitude and he lands himself in a crowd of 5,000. His solitude is interrupted by his circumstances. But right after all of these happenings, the news, this hard news, this huge crowd, this amazing provision, this is what it says in the text that we read. 
Jesus made his disciples, some translations say he insists that his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. So he puts his disciples on a boat and he's like, you just float away without me. And then he dismisses the crowd. He's like, all right, you've all got your full tum-tums. Now off you go. And so off they go. So after he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So there's this picture that we need silence and solitude to rest. And sometimes that silence and solitude gets interrupted, but Jesus didn't dismiss himself. And he did not dismiss the practice. He adapted, yes, to the circumstances in front of him, but he still took time later to be alone. And our practices of silence and solitude will likely get interrupted. Just know that. There's a high likelihood that it'll get interrupted. And we may need to adapt. Our compassion may compel us, or there may be another reason that compels us. And we might still need to take the solitude later. We don't have to dismiss ourselves or dismiss the practice because of the interruption. We may just need to adapt to the circumstances. Jesus needed solitude. There's another moment in the garden right before Jesus' death, and the text says that he felt sad and anxious. And so he left the disciples. They were close by, but he left them to be alone. Sometimes the practice of silence and solitude gives us a capacity to feel our pain, to lament our loss. And maybe in the garden before death, it's what gave Jesus his courage. Maybe interrupted, we may need to adapt, but it's still a practice worth moving towards might be vital to move towards. There is also a need to find silence when people are genuinely being annoying. This is why I love these little peppers throughout the text, because you're like, oh yeah, Jesus takes this moment alone in lots of different circumstances. And sometimes he just genuinely needs silence when the people around him are being irritating. So, we'll look at the book of John for this. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And I love that it says withdrew again. Because what does that tell us? He's done it before. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He went to the mountain by himself because of the intentions and the actions of the people around him. They, the intentions and the actions of the people around him were not good, so he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He is not going to attune to those intentions. There's another moment, just the next chapter over in John chapter 7. Later, after his brothers had gone up to the festival, he went up himself 
not openly, but as though he did not want to be seen. So when we read the word later, it begs the question of, well, what happened earlier? Well, what happened earlier is Jesus' brothers are telling him what to do. His brothers are doubting him and they are criticizing the way that he is um, showing up in the world. And so they're like, come on, we've got to go to this festival. Like, why are you hiding? Why are you, being, why are you doing all these things in secret? If you really think you're going to do something that's transformational, like get it out in public, brother. Like, come on, let's go up to the festival. And Jesus is like, nah, I'm not going. I'm going to stay here. And then I love that it says, after they had gone, he went without them. <laughs> he did go, but not with them. And it was a many days walk to get there. So he likely had a few days of solitude. So the practice of silence and solitude is sometimes needed when people's expectations and disappointments and criticisms are such that staying or being in the company of others is not good for anyone. Jesus took space in both of these instances out of a clear identity. So it is a practice of health and of wholeness and of secure identity. No. No to that. And so far, most of these stories have been Jesus totally withdrawing to solitary places, or like now he has a couple days walk on his own. But solitude can also come in the company of others. We don't need to be totally alone to experience the internal solitude and silence. They were now on their way up to Jerusalem and Jesus walked on ahead. Have you ever walked on ahead? Sometimes when I'm with my family, I'm like, okay, let's just walk on ahead, HD, walk on ahead. And we don't know why Jesus walked on ahead, but he walked on ahead. He wasn't outside of the company of others. He was just ahead. And again, the, some commentators say that this was a long walk, probably about 22 miles. So we don't know how long he walked on ahead, but there was a moment where he needed his own space, solitude, silence, that quiet that comes also in the company of others. There's another moment in Luke, where it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And clearly in this moment, Jesus is doing something, kind of a solitary action, but he's in the company of his disciples. And we know that because it says when he'd finished, then his disciples or one of the disciples talked to him. So he was there, but they knew he was clearly not there to be talked to. And I'm sure you've had moments like that when you're with a family member or a friend or you're just like, hey, glad we're all together, but I'm going to be doing my thing right here. And everyone's like, cool, cool, you do your thing there. Like, but you're in the company of others, but you're still practicing a solitary experience. And so sometimes our silence or our solitary actions come in the company of others. And it is a practice that is not limited 
to deserted or solitary places. Which I think is good news for some of us, because some of us, it is very difficult to get to an actual solitary place. If you have small children, or you have a job that requires you all the time to be around folks, it is good and healthy to know that you can do this practice in the company of others. And so there's lots of reasons to be alone, to choose solitude and silence, as we see in this text. And the stories highlight that it is a deeply valuable practice that ties us to quiet prayer, ties us to identity and clarity and discernment and lament and rest, which ultimately kind of roots us in an ability to love. But what I would say is that we have to be mindful. Like if I tried to run a marathon today, it would not go well. I was thinking about that. Like there's a person in our community called Josh Pugel and he runs all the time. And I was like, dude, if he tried to run a marathon today, he'd probably go okay. But if I tried to, it would be a bit of a hot mess. I probably wouldn't get very far. I don't run at all, in fact. <laughs> so trying to do a marathon is definitely biting off more than I can handle. And I think that's true of practices too as we talk about these um, over the next five weeks. And particularly this one. If you are not used to solitude and silence, spending a lot of time doing it can be jarring. It can be hard and it can be unproductive. It actually can also be damaging. I had a friend who decided to take a week alone and it did not go well for him. He relapsed, in fact. So we have to be mindful of what we're capable of, what our practice, like what kind of solitude are we able to step into? Maybe you could do a whole week on your own and it would be a gift to you. But maybe you start with like five to 10 minutes. Same way that Josh is gonna run a marathon and I'm just gonna like take a walk around the park. You know, let's just be real. The other thing to pay attention to that is if you live solo, the idea of me saying to you, like, take up the practice of silence and solitude, you already have a lot of silence and solitude, and it is a commodity perhaps you have too much of. And it can turn into isolation, which is weighty and unhelpful. And because sometimes the stories that we tell ourselves in isolation and in silence are the farthest thing from love. And so in those moments where we feel isolated, the risk is to reach for somebody else or to reach for beauty or to reach for an adventure or to reach for an animal, something that will connect you to more than the smallness you feel when you are alone. So it's important to be mindful of how we do these practices. And isolation is not limited to being solo. Sometimes the most isolating moments come around those we love that we feel far from, for all kinds of reasons. And so I want to be clear that the practice of solitude and silence is not about isolation. 
It's about rest and it's about comfort. It's about discernment and it's about love. And that it's a practice. So we will, it's to be learned. It's not about like success or failure. It's about growth and trusting and learning to receive love. And we have to be patient with ourselves and kind towards ourselves as we lean into these practices. And I thought it would be a little ironic if we talked about silence and solitude today and I just talked the whole time. That's kind of weird. So for the next 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going to give you some silence and solitude in the company of others. And for some of you, you're like, oh, love it. What a gift. And for some of you, you're like having a slight, like, oh, my word, what am I going to do? I'm here. For, I got you. I got you. Um, I have some support. There are these, and there's going to be a QR code behind us, and here are some actual intentional practices. Um, and you can use them on the QR code, or I have these little booklets that I made. Heather's DIY, just for you. Um, so that you have some intention behind the quiet. There are a lot of different things that you could do. Maybe you just read it, and it gives you an imagination for something you would do at another time. Or maybe there's one that you do now for 15, 10, 15 minutes. And I want you to remember that you are in charge of what is good for you. And so if you sit in here for 10 minutes or for five minutes and then you want to go and get a cup of coffee or take a little walk around, you feel free to do that. Um, or maybe you have something that you already know you want to attend to or pay attention to. There's something you've wanted to journal about or draw about. You do not have to follow this these are just suggestions in case you need a little bit of support in this quiet moment. But if there's something that you know that you need to be prayerful about or quiet about or just process about, you feel free to do that in these moments. It's a practice, and so we're just going to practice it together. So I'll give us about five to six minutes of complete silence. Maybe a little longer, I'll just see at least five minutes of complete silence and then there'll be a little bit of ambient music that happens behind and then after about five I mean 10 or 15 minutes I'll come back here and I'll pray and I'll close and then I'll invite us to the table but Missio we're invited into these practices to help us grow to deepen us and to help us attune to love and so you have the space now for that time to do that. And I'll walk about with these in case anyone wants a paper copy. There's also paper and pens back there if you want to jot anything. So welcome to your solitary and silent practice in community. Um, we'll kind of transition out of this moment of silence and we'll move into a different kind of worship, worshiping together in song. Um, and a reminder that we're exploring these practices so that we could be formed internally into hearts of God-shaped love. And so take this practice with you, take these resources with you, and remember those moments of being motivated into this place of silence and solitude 
to be grounded, to be well, to be growing, to be discerning, to be securing yourselves, to be comforting. And know that if it feels like isolation, it's not the right practice. And it's okay to step out of it. So I'll pray and then we'll come to this table. Um, it's a picture of reconciliation, of forgiveness and of love. And so everyone is welcome to this table. As we sing, we take communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Um, so we'll do that together and we'll sing. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for um, these stories and the gospels that give us an imagination for the practice of solitude and silence. Pray that um, in this year, 2024, that we would be quick to reach for it when we need it. Quick to find our way to solitary places to lament if we need or away from people who are behaving towards us in ways that are unhelpful. Moments where we're with people and we just need to be still. Would you grow us in this practice of finding that quiet, grounded space where we can hear your deep, deep love for us? Um, yeah, make us a people this year that are defined by love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.